Welcome to Focused on Forward. The purpose of this podcast is to focus on recovery from life situations, be it a disease, chronic or acute, perhaps the loss of someone so dear to you in death, or a change of life patterns that has affected you so profoundly that you have no choice but to find your new normal and become focused on moving forward. Each episode is designed to show the positivity that people bring to each and every one of their stories, the successes they've had, ways that they have become so definitively focused on moving forward. We look forward to sharing their stories, and we hope that they inspire you just as much as they have inspired us. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to Focused on Forward. Today we're going to talk with Michelle Clauser and we're going to talk with her about her journey in life, uh, where she was at, how she's gotten to where she is, and how she had her ability to become focused on moving forward no matter what obstacles life put in her way. So Michelle, we're very, very grateful to have you on this afternoon. And uh, whenever you're ready to get started, go ahead and go. Okay. Um... I think I'm going to just start with the beginning. Um, I was raised in Massachusetts and I had my mom and my dad and we had three siblings. I have, I have three siblings. Um, I have two sisters and I, I, we always kind of felt like we wanted more. Um, but you know, as kids, you never really understand why, you know, why you, you, you don't have more siblings that you want. Um, and so I think after enough pestering, we were able to convince my parents that we wanted to have more siblings. So they looked into adoption. So we went through and we were foster, a foster family. Um, so we had a lot of people, you know, come in and out and, you know, not many stayed too long until we hit a brother and a sister. They, they came super, super young. I think my sister was a like, maybe six months old when they got there um and they had been you know really abused by their biological mom so as any you know normal parent would do they really want my parents really wanted to focus on you know making sure that the or my the two foster kids felt loved and cared for and that they were safe and we you know it was fine for a few years and then it escalated and you know my mom started to realize, you know, I can make money and I can get, you know, free stuff from taking care of more, more and more kids. Like I've got an additional income from these two. And uh, so all of a sudden we were having five or six kids in a three bedroom house, you know, coming in and out. And I think it really started to hit every, like my, my siblings, my biological siblings, you know, that my mom was more focused on helping these kids than she was to be around us and spend time with us. Um, And at some point around, I want to say the fourth foster kid that we had come in, um, we noticed that something was, you know, different with my mom and she wasn't, you know, the happy-go-lucky, like spend, love, love the kids, spend the time with them, hang out with them outside, go swimming with them. Um, and she was really aggressive, like really angry and really aggressive a lot. Um, and it kind of all, we all realized what happened when I was 13. Um, my grandpa was in the hospital. He had 
some kind of surgery. We couldn't remember quite what surgery. Um, but my mom had met this man that was in the hospital room with my grandpa. And uh, he had come from a halfway house because he had punched out a window. Um, and once he had left the hospital, my mom would drive two hours to go visit him in jail. Um, she used to go to his court dates with him. She'd leave us uh, home alone. And I think at that point, like I was old enough to watch the kids, but you're still kind of curious. Okay, where's mom? What's going on? What are we, what are we doing? We don't have dinner. You know, we don't have this or that. Um, and my aunt really, they started to catch on and figure out, okay, something's not right with Lisa, my mom. Um, so we, we, you know, we got to try to figure this out and figure out what's going on because my dad works. He worked as a vice principal for a, a troubled youth home. Um, and he wasn't around as much as he could be because he was the only work, he was the only person that worked in the family. Um, so my aunt really kind of took up, you know, making sure we were okay. We had food, we had meals, we had everything that we needed. Um, and when I was 14, we ended up realizing that she had been going to court with the guy that she had met in the hospital room. Um, and that was kind of the tipping point where my aunt and my sisters were like, okay, well, we're going to go down there and figure this out and straighten this out and um so my sisters we all went down and in the courtroom my middle sister and we have a we do have a reputation of being a little hot-headed and getting a little angry very quickly um ended up seeing my mom in the courtroom and you know as any 10 year old oh, oh like there's mom like hey mom like come here come sit with us like what's going on um the judge, my sister got hysterical and the judge said, you know, if this is your daughter, you need to calm her down. And my mom said, no, that's not my daughter. I'm with him. And that kind of really was the tipping point where we were like, okay, you know, maybe she doesn't care about us as much as we think she does. Um, and so on the way home, we, you know, everybody was hysterical. My sister was hysterical in the car. Um, and they, I think they stopped at a rest stop or like a pull off on the highway. And my sister hopped out of the car and went running towards my mom's car. Um, and my mom took off and almost run my sister over. And Man. that was, you know, I think that was a really hard time for my sister because it's like, okay, you know, my mom's supposed to protect me and love me. And here she is almost running me over. Um, <clears throat> yeah, that's a little it, tough to take, denied by your mother and then almost you know, run over by her all in the same, all in the same day. Yeah. And it wasn't like it was, you know, denied in private. It was in this huge courtroom by all these random people that my sister, you know, you don't, you don't know who you're around. You don't yeah, know very, what's going on. A very on. public thing. And I, I think that with, you know, my whole family, all my siblings do have, you know, issues from everything that happened with our child childhood. Um, but my sister really does, you know, hold on to a lot of, of pain from just this situation alone. And it's, it's hard for her to, you know, still comprehend. And I think she still tries to fight for my mom to try to get her to prove that she still cares about us kind of thing. Um, so did you ever discover why she was going down to the courthouse with this other, this other man? It turns out that he was arrested for I think he was dealing a certain kind of drug I'm not 100% which one it was um, but it was a, a new type of 
drug up north and I'm from Massachusetts so I say up north um but it was a new kind of drug that hadn't really been around and my mom got excited that it was something that she could use and you know not have to be present in like the day-to-day -day life um so a lot of what she was getting from this guy was drugs she got drugs and she would pay for you know his gas at one point she stole my grandparents credit cards and maxed them out from just like gas station cigarettes snacks like the most random stuff so was, she was funding him he was funding her with drugs yeah it was like a like a dual purpose relationship she was getting the drugs and he was getting just you know random life necessities that he thought he needed for free kind of i mean besides <laughs> the drugs but it was just a it was just solely drug fueled situation um and it really kind of escalated from that because he hadn't it was always her going down there it was never him coming up to our house or around our family until one year um we always kind of nosed through our parents closets we were like okay we're gonna try on mom's shoes you know my sister would try on my dad's firefighter jacket he had a huge reflective jacket we all loved um and one time we were going through the closet and we were like oh wow you know we've never seen these these shoes before because they were big huge um steel toe boots like the big that go halfway up your calf and we were like okay well we've never seen these and on the inside little tag um it said his name and we had all recognized his name because we've heard my aunts you know saying i called the courts about this and i found his like so and so um and we we're like oh wow okay like so his stuff is in our house so does that mean he's been here or does that mean you know she's still seeing him after she had said you know i'm not i'm not around him anymore um and at that point it was me and my two sisters and my brother and we were all so angry we dragged all the stuff out into the front yard and i still kind of laugh thinking about it because we you know 16 14 and 12 and we were all out there trying to light the stuff on fire with whatever we could find and my sister tries to pee in a shoe and like just these little kids out here like standing doing the most random stuff around this clothes and that was like the the first time we realized he was coming around and um one christmas the the christmas after that we realized that you know my mom was still around this guy and she was really really you know absorbed in him um she left us christmas eve we were all sitting there home alone and my grandma had to come up and stay with us because my mom refused to come home because she spent christmas eve with him and you know as kids christmas eve you're like oh this is so like this is exciting an exciting time and we just kind of got ditched and uh, sure, it's a big deal on many people's calendars absolutely yeah, yeah um so that was like a okay okay wow like you know this really is happening this isn't just you know once in a blue moon she's doing stuff like she really left us on like a big holiday um and a couple of nights after that when she came home my sister was in the living room and we used to have a huge big bay window with you know logically no curtains because it was this huge thing and there was nobody ever we were never concerned about somebody looking into our living room and my sister's like oh wow like you know who's standing out there and it was snowing 
um, my sister's like, why is there anybody out there? Like what's going on? And so we flipped on all the lights and it was this guy that my mom was going down to see standing outside our house, like peering through our window. My sister was hysterical. So we had a couple of friends who were cops up North. And um, so they all, they came over, you know, lights, sirens, and they were chasing this guy around our property. And he ended up, my dad had built us a tree house. He ended up going up the stairs to the tree house and, you know, him plus three or four other cops running up into a tree house, you know, that, you know, it's not going to hold. And I remember our tree house came down and he ended up getting arrested. But the next day it was still, you know, fresh snow. And I think it was really dry. For me, I had a hard time because you'd go outside and you saw all these footprints. It had just snowed. You know, you're excited to go outside and, you know, play in the snow. And all you see is these crazy footprints running all throughout the property and then the tree house on the ground. Very vivid reminders for sure. It was just like, okay, like, you know, something really did happen here. We're not dreaming. Because at this point, we were kind of all like, you know, this can't, this can't be true. Like, this isn't, no, no other kid in school is going through this. Like, like they're, they're, all these parents are normal. Like, why is, why is this something different going on with us? Um, and I think after that, it really kicked in that we were like, okay, we can't, like, we don't want to put up with this. And I remember I just was so mad like I was so mad that my mom had done this not only to me but to my two biological siblings and then she added in two foster kids that we had adopted so like not only were their lives messed up from birth to when they came to us but now my mom was putting them through all this so yeah kind of adding insult to injury to them at that point it was, yeah it was just like okay like let's just pile it on top and I, I was fine taking the blunt, like the, of, of anything. Like if she, you know, if she was mad, take it out on me, leave my siblings alone. Like don't, don't, don't harass them. And that really kind of bit me in the butt because when I was 16, she kicked me out of the house. Um, and she, you know, she said, no, if you're, if you're not gonna leave me alone and let me live my life, then you can leave. Um, so I very vividly remember that my dad said, no, like if she leaves, I leave. And my dad, and my dad came with me. Um, we had nothing. I had nothing. I had, I think I, the, the clothes I had on me and I want to say my backpack for school, but I didn't have like all my textbooks and everything. And so we had nowhere to go. And so my dad was like, okay, well, you know, she has all the money we've been paying the mortgage on this house so I don't have any extra money so we lived in my aunt's basement for three months on air mattresses um and I think my aunt really kind of turned into a mother figure in my life because she was like okay well we you know we need to go get you clothes we need to go get you, you the essentials um and that that like I want to say made my heart happy because I hadn't had that in so long like I hadn't had somebody be like oh like I care I'm gonna help you I'm gonna protect you sure um, Re- giving giving you the that motherly attention looking after you giving you that care that makes sense every like everything that I had ever wanted from my mom coming from my aunt um <clears throat> and she really just you know helped us through that <clears throat> 
Um, but then it got to the point where I couldn't see my siblings and I had been turned into this villain. Like I was trying to hurt them and I was, you know, going to try to kidnap them and all this just stupid stuff that no 16 year old would do or like would act like. Um, and I was so mad that all my childhood stuff, like my, you know, I had pictures and anything I ever had growing up was in that house. And so I used to, I remember I used to plot to try to, you know, sneak in the windows and I'm going to go after this, this day. Like I need to get this from here. And, um, one day my mom was somewhere and my sister let me in and I was like, okay, like I got to run for the closet, run for the closet. I'm going to grab, I had a box of, um, like letters and cards I'd ever gotten and like a picture of my uncle who had died. And I had a picture of like me, like my 15th birthday and all these super important memories of mine in a box. And I was like, I'm going to go for this box. If that's all I get, that's all I get. And I remember grabbing the box and holding onto it for dear life. And I remember so vividly hearing my mom rounding the corner because she thumped really hard when she walked and she has a bad hip. So she'd kind of drag her foot a little bit. And I heard that and my heart started just I, beating out of my chest. And I'm like, okay, I got to get out of here. I got to protect this box. If anything else, I'm protecting this box. Um, and she used to get really aggressive. Like she'd not push you, but kind of you slam into you with her chest and like, kind of like just slam you out of the way, slam you which way. Um, and she'd get in your face and she'd just push and push with her chest. And like that, that situation, it was like, okay, you're supposed to be my mom. Like, why are you doing, I, all I want is, you know, this picture of my uncle. I want the picture of me and my friends. Like I want this and that, like, it's not nothing like monetarily important. Like I can't, you can't sell this and get a grand for it or whatever. Like, let me leave with this. And I think I ended up like swinging around and I ran out the door and I ran and we left. And it was just like, I was in the, my aunt's van, hysterical, sitting on the floor because it was one of the old vans that didn't have the seats unless it was in the back seat. And it was just like, this box was so important to me and I couldn't get the stupid box. Um, and after that, it was like, okay, well, you know, if I can get this box, I got to see if I can get something else. Um, my grandpa had bought me, they had used all their money to buy me a laptop for high school because we were just entering high school. And I was like, well, you know, I need this laptop. I'm not going to give her the satisfaction of having it. And she had heard through the grapevine that I was going to try to get it. So she had locked it in the spare tire part of her Jeep. Um, so I couldn't get it. And I, you know, finagled my way into my telling my sister, okay, hey, get this key or have it unlocked you know I'm gonna come up with grandpa and my aunt and we're gonna pull in I'm gonna jump out grab the laptop and run um and I still I a lot of it's really traumatic but it's I, I I'm at the point where I kind of laugh because I just imagine you know this this big old 16 year old me running down this driveway pulling into the house my aunt had a green van that the door slid open on the side <clears throat> So I pulled in, went running down the driveway. My grandpa's sitting in the back seat of the van waiting for me to jump back in so he can shut the door. And I'm just running down the driveway. I opened the trunk of the car and my mom saw me running and started to come out. But she moved slower 
and I couldn't outrun her. So I jumped in the Jeep and I whipped open the, the spare tire part to the car, grabbed my laptop and just like I did with the box, you know, held on for dear life. And I turned around to take off running and she grabbed me. And all I remember that day was spinning around so hard, trying to like out, you know, outmaneuver her. And she held on and she went whipping to the ground. And I, I was terrified. I was like, oh, I'm going to get arrested. I'm going to get put in jail. I'm never going to see my family again. And all I remember hearing my grandpa was run, run, run. And so I just took off running. And she was screaming after me, you're going to be arrested. You're never going to see the light of day. You're never getting out of jail. And I just jumped in the car and my aunt peeled out of there. And it was, it was so hard because it was like, these are, you know, just basic things that I needed. I needed you know, a computer to write essays on. And at that point I was in, I was the editor for um, the de the design for the school paper. So it was like, okay, I really needed a computer to be able to, you know, set up the school newspaper. I'm, you know, I'm not going to be able to do this, you know, just by hand or anything. Um, and that I still like very vividly remember that stupid laptop situation because so how old were you at this point? You were 16, you said? 16. I was, I think, 15 and a half because it was around my birthday. And up north, you can get your license or you can get your permit at 15 and a half. So it's okay. 15 and 16. So that's, so up to this point, that's, that's a couple of really traumatic instances you've already talked about with things you've had to deal with, uh, with all of that. Yeah. It was... It, it happened so fast, but when you're like going through that situation, it felt like it really just dragged out and it was like, oh, wow, like this is taking forever. But then when I look back, it's like, okay, wow, this really happened, you know, in the course of a year, two years. But I mean, yeah, in the middle, in the middle of things, our brain tends to slow things down and, and what may be happening in this matter of moments seems to take you know, hours, forever, you know, whatever it may be. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, a hundred percent. But even like with, when we did finally get, my dad got an apartment, it felt like it took so long and, you know, we had been through so much and it was, it's it, like, it was just insane that, you know, this had all happened. And I'd tell people like what happens at home. They're like, no, like, that's not like, there's no way, like there's, there's no way. And we had a few of our police friends that were like, yeah, you know, we got a call for this, this house, this address, like so-and-so said this. And then it, people started to believe it. And they, you know, realized that, you know, maybe my mom wasn't all right in the head or something was going on somewhere. Um, but even like with everything that happened with my mom, we always tried to kind of fix her. Like we were like, okay, you know, we want my mom, I want my mom back. I want you know, the mom I've always wanted. So let's try to find like a rehab for her. If, you know, if drugs really is the issue that she's having or alcohol, like, let's try to figure it out. Like, let's, you know, so we sat, my grandpa sat down and my mom sat down and my grandma and my grandpa, and my aunt, my uncle, we all sat down. We were like, okay, well, we're going to try to figure out like, where can our insurance help like take her? if she's having this issue. So we ended up having like three or four interventions and every time I'm so sorry, like I'm never going to do this again. I want help. Um, and it was just every time. And I think after like the second time I was like, okay, like she, you know, she's not going to, she's not going to fix herself. 
she's not good. She doesn't want to be helped. She doesn't want, you know, the assistance that, you know, is provided to her that, you know, we've went through all this painstaking effort to try to find places for her to go and she doesn't want it. So I kind of lost hope at that point and I was like, okay, I'm kind of done trying to figure it out and figure out what was going on. Um, but I, you know, later realized around the time that I hadn't been able to really talk to my siblings that she had started to give them drugs also. So both of my siblings were on drugs. Oh and no. It was, it was really hard because I saw my sister just getting skinnier and skinnier and it was like, okay, like this isn't like, you know, she, this isn't just like a weight loss thing. Like you could tell like her face was sunken in. Um, and there's still one picture that I know she has somewhere is she looked like a, she looked like a zombie. Like her face was so sunken in. It was like, okay, something's really going on. Um, yeah, there's a drastic difference between uh, weight loss and drug fueled yeah. weight loss. There's it's it night and, it's night and day. It was in, it was it was a scary thing because you know it was right around the time like you know opioids really had kicked up and it was a lot of people were dying like they you know they didn't really know how to treat overdoses like as well as you know they do nowadays with Narcan and stuff they, you know, they didn't really know. And I was like, okay, I'm, you know, I'm going to be getting a call one day that, you know, my sister's dead on the floor and my mom's standing over her body laughing. Like I, it was, it was terrifying, but it was, I feel like it was kind of like a necessary evil to kind of get where we all are today. Um, but, you know, around the time she started giving everybody drugs, she used to, my mom used to drink very, very, very heavily too. And, um, you know, I think combining a couple of times she had tried to combine drugs and alcohol. And at one point I was in college, she ended up bleeding out. And so I had to drive from Vermont to mass and they were like, well, you know, she's not going to make it through the night. And I was like, okay, so here I am driving down. Um, she got out of the hospital. She ended up getting transfusions and stuff. Um, two weeks later, she was back in the hospital for drinking and drugs again. And I was like, okay, well, at this point, you 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 can kind of tell you really don't care to live. If this is, you know, you, you the doctors told you, you can't do this. You can't do that. You can't take this. You can't take that. Like, you need to be cautious. And you just went right back to doing whatever you wanted to. Um, and she just, she just kept doing it and kept doing it. And at one point, I just gave up. I was like, okay, I'm going to live my life for me. I have to try to, you know, set my situation up right. And uh, that was around the time I met Seth, my husband. We got married in 2012. Um, a month after I got married, my dad had a heart attack. And he ended up needing a it's six, sextuple bypass. He had different oh my different tears and clots, and it was it was intense. Yeah, that's um, that's a that's a major major heart surgery. It was it was a it was. Uh, we kind of didn't think he was going to live, but it's my dad and my dad's tough and stubborn. Um, and he, you know, he had texted me that night. He said, you know, I'm not feeling too good. It was two o'clock in the morning. Um, it, he waited until seven to go to the hospital and they said, okay, you had a heart attack. Like we got to get you to one of the, I think it was one of the best cardiac area hospitals in the area. And, um, 
me and Seth drove my dad's car, followed the ambulance, and we laughed because my dad's waving to us from the back of the ambulance. Like, it was all fine. <laughs> like, and everything's we, fine, no big deal. No, me and Seth are sitting there hysterical driving, and my dad's just smiling and waving away. And I was like, okay, like, he's really losing his mind then. Um, <laughs> but one of the things my dad taught me from a young age, if anything happened to me, grab the checkbook and run. Because my mom had very, very, very often tried to take his money, take his checkbooks, you know, break into his stuff. He had like a $50,000 comic collection. Um, she used to try to steal that and steal them. And that was one of the things that was really like bred into me. Take the checkbook and run. So in natural Ackerman fashion, I grabbed his checkbook and his wallet. And I stuffed it, I, you know, I stuffed it down my shirt and I was like, well, they're never going to look here. Like, it's fine. Um, and the next day he was in the hospital right after his surgery. Um, my mom had shoved me in the hallway of the surgery. So I came home early because I was just hysterical. Um, and she showed up with my sister and I love my sister to death. And it's still funny to me, but they showed up at the apartment in this red Jetta and they were just laying on the horn screaming they wanted the checkbook and my mom was looking through our windows of the apartment saying I bought all this diet coke with my dad's money and like it was just the most outrageous stuff and poor old Seth we were only married a month tops he's in the bedroom on the floor like hysterical like they're gonna kill us they're gonna break in and kill us and I'm laughing because I had been through you know this with her for so long um I was like Welcome. Seth just Welcome to the family, Seth. <laughs> Welcome to the family. Like, just call the cops, do what we usually do. Like, let's get the show on the road, get them out of here. <laughs> so we called the cops and Seth, I don't know, like he, something spurred in him. He hopped up. He was like, I'm, I'm rough, tough. And he went and talked to the police officer. He's like, this is, you know, my landlord's property, but I rent here. Um, I want her off the property. And the cop was like, okay, that's all you got to say. And so the cop was like, okay, well, we're going to take down your information. We're going to make a report, take down your information and everything. So we gave him all our information and, you know, we started to say like, Hey, this is Lisa Ackerman. He goes, Oh no, no, we know who we, we know who she is. Like we've got all the information we need on her. And Seth was like, wow, your family really is nuts. Like this, this is insane that the, the police chief knows who your mother is. I was like, Seth, you got to remember at this point, my mom had had four DWIs. She had a breathalyzer in her car. Like she really had just a reputation Oh, you mean the kind that you have to blow on in order to start the car? In order oh, to yeah. Okay, gotcha. She had the whole kit and caboodle. She had to, and I think at that point you had to, it had started to transition over to you had to blow while you were driving. It was like every 20 minutes you had to re-blow or something like that. Oh, in order to keep the vehicle running. Yeah. So it wasn't like a just start and go kind of thing. Like she had to continually do it. Um, yeah. So they were, they were full on aware of who, who your mother was then. Yeah, they, they knew, like, they knew who she looked like, they knew her car, they knew her license plate, they knew, you know, at some point she had, you know, had her license suspended, and they, she, they knew that she'd switch cars with people, and, you know, they wouldn't be looking for this red Jeep, they'd be looking for a different kind of car, you know, they had really caught on to, to all of her little tactics to try to, because she, she, she always thought she was um, untouchable, or, like, she wasn't able to, you know, get into any trouble, so she thought she was one step ahead all the time. Oh, all, all the time. Every single time. Every single time. Um, <clears throat> but she had, I want to say, she kept me from my dad because she had convinced my dad to move in with her so she could take care of him. 
Um, so she had kept him four months and I wasn't able to see him until one night. I was like, I'm done. Like this is, this is bull. Like I'm done. Um, so I climbed through her apartment window when she was out drinking one night and, uh, I went in and I, cause I had gotten stuff for Seth and I wanted to show my dad. I was so proud of myself. I had picked out this Celtics Jersey all by myself. Um, and my dad was like, why, why haven't you called? Like, why haven't you come to see me? I said, dad, I've called you every single day. You know, I've come and I've stood outside the apartment and yelled for you. I've, I've done all this stuff and Lisa's kept you. She's kept you away and I haven't been able to visit you. And to this day, he doesn't remember it because he, you know, he's been through a sextuple bypass. He doesn't remember a lot of leading up to the heart attack and a lot of after the heart attack. It's a long recovery road from that, from that surgery. That's understandable. Oh, a hundred percent. And like amount of stuff that he had gone through with getting it and staying in the hospital for as long as he did, then the cardiac rehab. Um, I'm kind of glad that he doesn't remember because he is, he is, he is very sensitive. Um, and I think if he remembered, I think that would kill him more than anything else was that, you know, he wasn't able to see his kids or like they were so convinced that he had hated them and stuff like that. Um, but he, you know, he figured, figured his way out of her clutches. And I think it was, you know, it was pretty calm for a year or two. Um, I think it was a year actually. And then we got a call that my sister, uh, had tried to hang herself. And so we were all hysterical. We were like, okay, we're all rushing to the hospital. Um, and Seth had kind of caught on to some of the antics that my mom had, you know, put through. Um, and I sat my sister down cause my sister was one of the ones that found my other sister. And I was like, what happened? Like be like, give me all the detail, like be very exact with what you say. And my sister is, 5'11", and the apartment that they were in, the closet was only, it was six foot. It wasn't anything substantial. It was very short closet because it was an efficiency type apartment. And so it was like an under the stairs closet, very short, very narrow. And so I said, okay, Sarah, explain to me what had happened. And the, the math of it didn't add up at all because my sister said there was two feet between my sister and where she had been set up. Um, and then there was a stool that was two feet. And so Seth is sitting there and he's like, okay, like, let's, let's like logically think about this. If your sister's close to six foot tall, two feet below, two feet above, that makes the closet had to have been substantial. Like it had to have been very tall, which it wasn't. Um, and there wasn't like the, the usual marks that you would find or the doctors would find in like a hanging situation. They did treat it like that, you know, so she had the neck, the neck brace and she was, um, what's the word, like held down to the bed. Um, so my aunt came and she said, you need to like run a drug test, like run all these drug tests. Oh, they stra you mean they strapped her down, secured her to the bed? Yeah, so like okay. she couldn't okay. leave, couldn't do anything crazy. Yeah, re the, the restraining straps. Yeah, I couldn't, for the life of me, couldn't think of the word. Um, and no worries. And we sat there in the hospital room. They gave us a private room because of the nature of what had happened. Um, and so it was me, my aunt, Seth, my sister, 
my dad and my mom shows up and uh, my sister was still in school and she was learning French. So I was trying to help her to try to keep her, you know, her mind off of what we were there for. Um, and so we, me and Sarah, we're just talking and trying to, you know, go over the French and all of a sudden my mom starts singing and me and Seth look at each other. We're like, what is going on? And up North, we lived in an area where, um, Harriet Tubman during the underground railroad had brought the slaves through. Um, so as part of our schooling, we learned a lot of like the slave songs that they would sing when they were traveling the underground railroad. Um, that's cool. It, it was so cool. I loved living up there. Um, but my mom was high and drunk in the middle of the emergency room, like that we were in singing these old slave songs, laughing. And like, everybody else is like, my sister just tried to take her life. Like, what are you doing? And Seth and my dad both were hysterically laughing at my mom because this was, this was her. Like, she didn't care about anybody else. She wanted to get high. She wanted her fix. She wanted this and that. And so she used to sing in these slave songs and I'm, we're like, okay, she's nuts. Like she's, she's completely lost it. Um, how are you so happy if your daughter, you know, just tried to take her own life? And so after that doctor comes down, okay, okay, we need to talk to you, like what she had in her system. My sister had six different kinds of drugs in her system. Um, none of which were prescribed oh, to her or wow. that she takes. Um, These were and prescription so when, drugs, not, not street drugs that she was taking. It was street drugs that, or, no, it was prescription drugs that were, if they weren't prescribed to you, like they were very serious drugs. There was one okay. with a and it was for um, bipolar episodes. Oh, yeah. Okay. But at that point, it was like a very heavily sold drug on the streets kind of thing. So she um, was taking other people's prescription drugs. Yeah. And my sister came, like, came around and, you know, she was, we were like, what, what happened? You know, what's going on? Of course, after like the psychological evaluation and everything. Uh, what happened? She said, the last thing I remember is mom giving me a handful of pills. And so we said, so did, did you try to like, did you try to kill yourself? She said, no, the last thing I remember was taking the pills. And that's all I remember. Um, so it turns out that my mom had tried to OD my sister and dragged my sister into the closet and tied one of her scarves around her neck. And at that point had yelled to my sister. And that was when my other sister had found her. Um, oh man! Wow. So my mom had kind of set up set up this whole this whole plot to try to you know try to say my sister tried to hang herself, um, and the the doctors were like you know this this there's all these drugs in her system there's th there should be zero, um, and I don't I don't a hundred percent remember whatever happened with if Lisa got charged for that because I was so mad. I was so mad that my sister had OD'd at the hands of the person that gave life to her that, you know, was supposed to be there to care for her. It was supposed to help her like do all the stuff and, you know, live a happy life. And my mom had felt it was okay to say here, you know, here's all these pills, like do with it what you will. Um, <clears throat> and she, it was, she, she just didn't care at that point. Um, that is, that's insane, really. 
yeah oh everybody i've told a select few people this story and everybody that hears it is like okay like you you know i see why you know you're so angry or you're so this or that and it was we had just it was part of lisa that was what she did to us like she you know set everybody up for failure and she had no issue with it she just didn't you know didn't care didn't care about herself unless she was getting money to get a fix or she was getting the drugs herself um and she you know she really held on to that overdosing she liked to be in control of people's pills she liked to be you know my grandpa got really ill um the last three years of his life and um now we live in North Carolina so I was only you know eight hours from Florida so I'd go down every couple of weekends to visit my grandpa um and he ended up in hospice a few times um and so he ended like the palliative care so like he needed morphine you know to relax because his his breathing wasn't right and he you know he all his organs were shutting down um and she she really loved being uh, in control of his drugs. And one night my aunt was like, okay, something's going on down there with Lisa. Lisa was down there with my grandpa alone. Um, something's going on. So my other aunt caught a red eye to Florida. Um, sure enough, my mom was trying to overdose my grandpa with morphine. Um, so he was, you know, relatively vegetative state. And we had taken him, you know, had the doctors come in and like, what's going on? Something's happening. And he was, you know, he's fine the other day and something's happening. Um, so we realized it was Lisa and my aunt was like, I'm not leaving his side. I'm going to, he was sleeping in a hospital bed in the living room. Um, my aunt was like, I'm sleeping on the couch. I'm going to watch. Like, I, I'm a light sleeper. I'm, you know, anything happens, I'm going to be right here. <clears throat> one night my um they got into a huge fight my aunts didn't want her controlling the morphine anymore um so they all started just wrestling over the morphine and uh my i think my mom ended up getting it and hiding it um so my aunts were like we're gonna take shifts watching grandpa to make sure nothing happens my aunt woke up i want to say like three 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 thirty in the morning um i remember her texting me my aunt texting me later that day um they woke up to my mom trying to pour more morphine into his mouth because at that point it was the liquid morphine. <clears throat> and um, my aunt was like, Lisa, what are you doing? Like, we just gave him his morphine, you know, not 30 minutes ago. Um, she's like, oh, he's in pain. He's crying in pain. And my aunt was like, no, I've been sitting here listening to him. He's been sound asleep. He's not in any pain. Like, get away from him. You're not giving him morphine. Um, and she just, you know, had no issue with it. And the next day she was gone. She had just left. Um, and that was kind of, uh, I feel like it was for a lot of people, like a telltale sign, like she got caught doing something she shouldn't have been doing. And she really honestly should have been arrested for. Um, she was yeah, gone. I'm she kind of even curious how that. she got into a point where she was even around and in charge of his medicines in the first place. I ask myself that every day of my life for the past two years. Um, but my grandpa is a very, very big, was a, was a very big fella. Um, six foot, you know, 250, 275. Um, and my grandma was 
four foot, four foot five, four foot six, um, like a tiny little thing. And she got to the point where she couldn't take care of him alone. Um, but because of her lung issue, she had to stay in Florida because Connecticut has really like harsh, sharp winters. Um, so there needed to be someone there 24 seven. Um, so my aunt would fly in from Oregon and she'd spend eight weeks there, two months there. Um, then my other aunt would switch off from Connecticut and spend eight weeks there. And then my other aunt would come down and spend eight weeks there. And I think they got burned out very quickly with spending 24 seven taking care of, you know, their dying father. Um, I can understand that having a few relatives, having taking care of their aging parents. That's a lot of work to be a caregiver, especially for your aging parents. That's a tremendous amount of work, even more so if they're ill. Yeah. And and not even just work, like emotional, like we watched, my grandpa was a father figure to me. He, we watched this giant of a person just, you know, shrivel down into like a shell. Um, That's, that's brutal. And that we, we all got overwhelmed. You know, I, me and Seth, we, you know, we couldn't do much, but you know, we could drive down a couple weekends a month and, you know, go hang out with them. Um, but they got burned out very quickly. And so they, you know, they resorted to, okay, Lisa, you need to help too. Um, hoping that, you know, it was his, her father, you know, maybe she wouldn't do anything stupid. Um, maybe it would mean more to her at that point they were hoping. Yeah. Well, the joke was on us because she stole his um, Vicodin. He had back issues, severe back issues. Uh, stole his Vicodin and just, you know, tried to overdose him. So after that, we were like, okay, we're really not, she's not coming back. Like, this is, this is not how this is happening. And if she does come back, it'll be when someone is here. So I think she went down maybe once after that situation, but I think it was six or seven months later. Um, And it was when my other aunt was there. Um, And even then she tried to take over the morphine and she tried to take control of it. And it was, it, it, I just, it, I just wondered if, you know, there was maybe something mentally wrong, if like the drugs had happened, you know, really gotten a hold of her brain and she wasn't thinking the way she could think. And it was like, you just tried to kill your father. Why, why do you think we're going to give you more access to his drugs? Um, And I remember I was down there maybe two weeks before that and before she came down and me and Seth and my aunt were trying to figure out where to hide the Vicodin, where to hide the morphine. Um, We had had Seth install a fake plate in the like little, I guess it's a sun area, sunroom. We took out a dead uh, light switch that wasn't working and we put a light switch over it that was just completely closed. And we put his extra Vicodin in there so she wouldn't think, you know, hey, I need a screwdriver to unscrew this because I'm going to go find the Vicodin. Um, So we spent a really long time trying to hide the drugs. And I still laugh because at one point Seth was like, well, why don't we just leave the Vicodin container out and fill it with laxatives? You know, she takes it. You guys are going to know because she's going to be going to the bathroom everywhere. Um, He's got a point. I, I, he had a point. He really did. But we couldn't find a laxative that looked like Vicodin. We looked like crazy people in Walgreens. You know, <laughs> trying like, to compare the pills. Oh, does this look we, like this? We, <laughs> we had the, like, it's, uh, it was an online, like, picture of the Vicodin pill. 
And so we must have looked crazy sitting there holding our phones out with this huge Vicodin pill on our screen, trying to like look at the bottles to see like the exact image of the laxative and everything. Um, so we gave up. We we're like, whatever, you know, if something happens, you know, there's grown adults here, they can call the cops. <clears throat> so um, I have to ask because now in hearing this story for the last few minutes, it's clear that there's obviously some issues uh your mother had some addiction issues uh things along those lines and and i'm going to guess that based on the fact that you call her by her name uh that there's no longer a close or any type of relationship between you and lisa i have i tried from when she kicked me out i tried up until I want to say my 23rd birthday because my grandpa was very heavy in the fact, you know, forgive and forget. You only have one mother, um, you know, just give her a call. But at some point, try and try and yeah. Okay. Yeah. At some point, like it, it, it really clicked. And I think it, uh, it was a huge part in Seth and some of the friends that we had acquired um, that I didn't need. I didn't need to have that toxic energy in my life like I didn't need my heart to feel like you know carrying the weight of all she's done and all she's done to my siblings and all she's done to my grandparents um because I I I really carried a lot of that like I felt I felt like responsible like you know if maybe if I hadn't like pushed her so hard to stop seeing this guy then maybe none of this would have happened like I felt like it was all my fault um so you took personal ownership, even though you weren't the one causing yeah. the rift and the issues. It, yeah, hundred percent. It was my fault. It was, you know, and looking back now, obviously it wasn't my fault. You know, drugs are one heck of a thing and they, you know, they really do damage to families. Um, they destroy them for sure. And it really, it took that, it took me, I want to say for the last two years, um, I really realized, you know, she doesn't, she doesn't deserve the space in my brain or my heart. Um, you know, she didn't want to fix herself the times that we tried to get her help. Um, she didn't want, she didn't, you know, she didn't want me around. That's on her, you know, cause she's, she's missing out. Like I, I, I still feel like I'm a terrible person, but I know that I'm, I'm like, I, I, when I give, I give 150%. Um, so that was on her losing that, like, that wasn't something that I could have changed. Um, and I, I really did just, she just kind of became inexistent to me. Um, she wasn't, you know, she wasn't somebody that I have anger with anymore. Um, but she's not somebody that, you know, I, I care for. She's just kind of a stranger. She's, Um, she's neutral ground for you. She's, she's neutral. I mean, if, you know, if somebody were to say, can you give her a character weakness? Of course I wouldn't, but she, you know, just isn't somebody taking up rent in any part of, of me anymore because yeah. it's not, it's not worth the hurt I feel or, you know, the anger I had. Um, okay. it's, it just wasn't worth it. Well, that makes sense. You know, a lot of people that we talk to, uh, we, we call it the light bulb moment where, mm-hmm they come to a realization that this person thing uh issue that they're dealing with um 
there has to be a change in them, their situation around them. What was your light bulb moment in, in your life that said, hey, I, I have to make changes for me? Um, 2017, for sure. Um, she, I kind of, I hold grudges and I, that's a terrible trait to have. I don't recommend it. Um, but she had just taken my dad's car in court. Um, his only car that he had. And, um, I was mad. I was so mad. I was livid. Um, and me and Seth had gone up to visit a friend up north and I saw her car in Big Lots or not in Big Lots in a, like a local store. Um, <clears throat> and I said, Seth, you have a pocket knife. And he was like, why? And I said, I want to slash your tires. Like I was done with it. Um, and Seth had said something to me. He said, it's not, it's not worth, it's not worth the pain it's not worth you going through any more of this pain. It's not worth you feeling the way that you're feeling right now. And you just doing this to her or to her property is her winning is her knowing that she's gotten to you and that she, she's upsetting you. Um, and so after that, it was like, Oh wow. Okay. Like you really have a point. Like she's, she's winning knowing that it's bothering me. Um, yeah, any action you take back, absolutely, she's won. It, it was it like I don't, I don't know what was so significant about about him saying that, but I think maybe just it coming from my husband, it you know, it, it maybe it hit different or something. But after that, I was like, it's not worth it. Like I'm gonna live a happy life with me and my husband, and you know, the family that I care about and the family that has been there for me from the get go. Um, okay. Yeah. That, well, that all makes sense too. And it wasn't, it wasn't worth it. It wasn't worth anything. So I was like, okay, you know, I'm going to let go of this. And it took a little bit in therapy, but it, she's, it's you, nobody needs that toxic energy. Nobody needs that drama. It's, you feel like you just live your life holding your breath, like waiting for, you know, the next thing to happen or the next upsetting thing for her to do to, to hurt you. Um, but if you don't give her, like, give them that time of day or that, that rental space in your heart, in your head, you can't be upset or you can't be hurt by them anymore. Yeah, very much agreed. Um, my dad calls it, uh, allowing people to live rent free. Yeah. You know, that, that, <laughs> that they've taken the space for free and that you're, you're allowing them to stay, to stay there. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So what do you do right now to help you? stay focused on moving forward because when it comes to issues such as these these are you know these are emotional issues these are they very much affect your your uh the way you feel about yourself clearly um the way you think about yourself the way you you know all these other things how do you overcome those things on a day-to-day -day basis to help you continue to move forward and you know i had a really hard time with it initially but once you once you get a really solid support system, like a really solid group of friends, um, they they really in, like tell you, you know, you're worth it. Like your feelings are worth it. You're, you know, you're you're you know you're you you're worth and you're like what you give to the world um, measures above and beyond a lot of 
you know, the bad that has been endured or that people have put out there. Um, so it took a really long time for me to be able to move forward and to figure out I can live my life, like I, I can live a happy life without any of that, you know, narcissistic energy and having to deal with being so concerned and, you know, the self-worth that I didn't have go like growing up and going through everything like I just felt worthless um and it took a while to find you know friends and family and even friends that I call family to help me realize that you know I'm I'm worth something and I don't I deserve more than just putting up and staying around this person because we're blood related well to use a saying that I hear you say uh quite often 10 out of 10 10 out of 10 10 out of 10 absolutely i think you nailed it there kid um you know i am glad to see that you're you're able to find value and worth in yourself and i'm glad that you're able to that you have those around you that are able to find value and worth in you uh because personally i think you're pretty cool so um because you know uh, for those listening um uh, Michelle and Seth and I and and my son uh, Nolan, we all play video games together. We talk quite often. Um, now I've known Michelle for a few years. We've talked for a few years. This is the first time I ever heard uh, any of the things that she shared in this podcast with us tonight. Uh, so that's uh, it's quite the story that you have, and quite the quite the bit to have to uh, to work past. So I I applaud you quite a bit to be where you are in your life. Well, I'm happy. I'm happy. I finally reached the realization and that I was able to get through all the baloney and everybody's worth everything. Not everybody is as useless as other people may lead them to believe. Absolutely. So let me, let me ask you one more thing. What is your parting advice for anyone who's living with or enduring a toxic relationship? I think number one is know your self-worth. That, you know, no matter what anybody tells you, that, you know, you deserve this situation, you're set up in this situation, um, that you you deserve, you deserve better, you deserve happiness, you, you deserve peace of mind. Um, just you, you deserve happiness. All right. Very good. Well, Michelle, I thank you for being on today. You have quite the story. And, uh, I think this is the type of story that when listeners hear it, uh, they'll listen a couple different times and pick out different things, uh, where instances where you showed tremendous courage, tremendous valor, uh, on not only on your own behalf, but I think on the behalf of your siblings, both, uh, fleshly and adopted. So, uh, uh, but just, yeah, just an amazing story overall. So thank you so much for, for being part of Focused on Forward. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. All right, guys. I think that's going to conclude us for today. Uh, thank you for listening to Focused on Forward and we'll see you on our next episode. Well, that concludes another episode of Focused on Forward. To be a guest of Focused on Forward, you can reach us through Twitter at podcastfof through our Facebook page named Focused On Forward, or through email, focusedonforward at gmail.com. 
We look forward to hearing each and every one of your stories that has yet to be told. So until then, be safe, be kind, and be loving to one another as you stay focused on Forward.